0: Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. My sincere thanks to listeners and those who have liked, subscribed, and commented. Your interest is noticed and deeply appreciated. Today's topic is one that is woven deep into self-defense. The lineage of Aikido and its parent art, Daito-ryu Aikijujitsu, are based in weapons work. You just cannot cover fighting and human combat without the use of weapons being part of the conversation. Ever since Neanderthal man picked up a rock or a stick to hit either an animal or another Neanderthal. Weapons have been a crucial tool in protecting oneself. The reason being, it makes the job easier, much easier. That's what tools are designed to do. Who in their right mind would want to make a task any more difficult than it has to be? You need to dig a hole? Why use your bare hands when you should be using a shovel? On the topic of self-defense, the situation is a little more complex than the hole-digging analogy I just used. Let's get into it and find out more. Weapons can get you into deep trouble, so having a high level of understanding is very important. Let me get the obvious out of the way first. We all have some level of information distortion about weapons from what we have seen in movies and on TV. The brain has a difficult time discerning truth from fiction. What it sees, it tends to believe. Even if we say that we know a fight scene isn't real, since we see it, we tend to think that it could be reality. Some fight choreography is superb and makes fight scenes both very dramatic and plausible looking. We see things like a smooth knife disarm and we think it would be quite possible to do. The reality of knife attacks and knife fighting show that knife disarms are highly unlikely. The difference between Hollywood and reality can be lethal if you take the wrong approach when it really matters. Because of the image of knives and pistols which movies and TVs portray, people are drawn to them like magnets. Not to say that these tools are not very good at giving you a tremendous advantage in a real violent conflict, because they certainly are. They can also pose some problems. How could having the advantage of a weapon in a fight be a problem? Well there are two potential problems here. First is if you're in a fight and you are carrying a deadly weapon, that fight now has a deadly weapon in the mix. It doesn't matter if you brought it in or your attacker did. It also doesn't matter if you never drew the knife or the gun that you're carrying. In the midst of a tussle, it very well may be that either of you could get your hands on it. It could fall out onto the ground or be grabbed from you. It probably would not happen from a disarm once you drew it, but a weapon is now in play. That brings up the second problem, which is that the discovery of a deadly weapon in a fight becomes known, it raises the ante of that fight. If a fight was a lower intensity tussle, the stakes are now much higher when a deadly weapon comes into play. Things get very serious when that happens. It can mean a serious escalation in the level of violence and intensity. No one wants to get cut, stabbed, or shot, so they will fight harder to keep that from happening. That brings up another reality of real fights. The introduction of a deadly weapon can make the other person quit and run away. If they realize that they could die in the next few seconds, they may just decide that this fight is not worth dying for. We see this in video surveillance footage pretty consistently. I think this is a major reason why people like the idea of carrying a knife or pistol because of the feeling that merely brandishing it will scare away an attacker. It's a reasonable belief, but there is some danger here too. A weapon is not a talisman, which is to say that if you draw a weapon you better be ready and capable of using it. You should never bring out a weapon in the hopes you will merely scare someone off. If someone calls your bluff and you don't know how to use that weapon, things will likely go horribly wrong. What if the other person has a weapon and you haven't seen it yet? If they do and you bring yours out, they will very likely bring theirs out. If you don't have the will to use yours and they do, then you will likely lose. If at that point you could run, well, why didn't you run in the first place? People who are experienced with using weapons have a different approach than the show the weapon to end a fight plan. Instead, they never want to show the weapon. You should feel it before you see it. People like this are at a level of deadly well past the average normal peaceful person. Such a person might be a street thug with questionable morals or a well-trained soldier with excellent character. The choice of how to use a weapon is more a matter of method than of conscience. This can seem odd to people who have not been in dangerous and life-threatening situations. The idea that you might have to seriously injure or kill someone to protect yourself is kind of an alien concept. It's one thing to watch it on a screen or imagine it in your head but as I said before, these are not reality. I bring up knives and pistols first because these two are by far the ones most people think of when it comes to personal protection, usually pistols being the most popular, but both qualify as deadly weapons, which is a legal designation. I'm not gonna get into the weeds of legal definitions here, but since I'm gonna be talking about non-lethal weapons shortly, I think it's worth mentioning. The level of damage that a knife or a gun can do is very high. Neither tool are well suited to scaling back the amount of damage you want to do to someone. A knife is a little better than the gun in this regard. You can choose to cut someone's forearm, which is less injurious than stabbing them in the chest or neck. One might think that shooting someone in the leg would be less serious than shooting them in the chest or the head. Again, this is a Hollywood-created illusion more than it is a reality. From a legal standpoint, and we are talking about your liability here, Cutting someone's arm is still assault with a deadly weapon, at very least. A prosecutor could even turn that charge into attempted murder. If your opponent has no weapon, a legal case could really start to go bad for you. I'm referring here to the US legal system, but there are many cases where people appear to be justified in using a high level of force to defend themselves, but are subsequently found guilty and spend a great deal of time in prison over it. Again, I'm not going to go deep into the legal weeds here. But we have to realize that going through a trial and perhaps dealing with a prison sentence are serious, life-impacting events. Because of this, your judgment better be very sound and you are very well trained so that you can avoid both the short-term threat of your safety and the long-term threat to your future. I wish we lived in times where victims of violence would not become victims of the legal systems they live under, but that's just the way that it is. You may be wondering about non-lethal alternatives. One of the most well-known non-lethal options for self-defense is mace or pepper spray. Some even say to carry aerosol cans of wasp killer or some other common toxic chemicals. I've not heard of any successful results using improvised sprays such as wasp killer, but I've heard of a few instances where mace is effective. Unfortunately, I've heard more stories where it didn't work than instances where it did work. It's easy to miss with using a spray, You can spray other people that you weren't intending to spray, or even have it merely enrage the attacker without actually stopping them. I wouldn't count on mace or pepper spray to be reliable. Another non-lethal alternative are stun guns. A stun gun is a short stick or a wand with an electrode on it to deliver a significant shock to an attacker. They're kind of like a taser, only a taser shoots the electrodes out to a target from a good distance away. The problem with a stun gun is that you have to be in close range to use it. In that range, do you have the hand-to-hand skills to successfully touch your attacker with it? Also, what if he's trying to stop you from doing so? The level of complexity has now increased drastically and the chances of success drop significantly. If your attacker is larger, stronger, and faster than you, the stun gun will be pretty ineffectual. The other thing about a stun gun is that it might have trouble delivering an adequate shock through multiple layers of clothing. This means you would have limited target areas to place it, usually ones that are hard to get at, such as the neck. I don't recall any stories of people using stun guns successfully, although they may be out there. Therefore, I would be very dubious of them being useful for self-defense. Mace and stun guns are more gimmicks than they are real tools. Now we get to slightly more valid self-defense tools. These are coup batons, collapsible batons, canes or walking sticks, saps, blackjacks, brass knuckles, and other force multipliers. Each have their own advantages and their drawbacks. One thing they all have in common is that they require base hand-to-hand skills in order to use them effectively. None of these will work at all unless you are confident enough to function in hand-to-hand fighting. Without training, this will be virtually impossible. No tool will be useful unless you know how to use it. Some of the drawbacks of what I listed above, particularly saps, blackjacks, and brass knuckles, are often illegal to carry, at least in many US states. I strongly recommend you research your local laws before making any decision on what you decide to carry around with you. It may seem like a hiking stick would be a good option for an aikidoka to carry since we train with a Joe, which is nothing more than a walking stick. I don't necessarily think this makes a great deal of sense. First off, a hiking stick looks very out of place in an urban or a suburban environment. If you walk around with one, it will look conspicuous. Now if you're hiking in the woods, it wouldn't. Also consider your training with it. It is usually in a wide open dojo floor with plenty of space to move around. Take your Joe into an elevator, hallway, or office and try wielding it in there. These are places you are most likely going to need it. Space gets tight really fast. Also consider the inconvenience of hauling such a long stick around everywhere. It really is rather large and clumsy. A cane or walking stick are far more discreet and normal looking in an urban setting. The difference between a cane and a walking stick is that a cane has some kind of a protruding handle and a walking stick usually has merely a ball at the top. Both are used commonly with people who are experiencing hip, knee or back problems, so they don't look out of place at all in a modern society that is unless you're strutting around with one over your shoulder. Another option is an unbreakable umbrella which are also very easy to find on sale. They are very sturdy and well suited to be discreet and fairly easy to carry around. Just like any tool you must know how to use it properly. Some dojos train with hanbo or three-foot stick techniques. There are many sources for good cane or walking stick techniques out there. Savat and Bartitsu have some excellent material about them. Just like any techniques, training and practice are not optional. They are required. Lastly, I do want to mention improvised weapons. These are things which are around you, wherever you are, which you can use to defend yourself. Items such as chairs, waste baskets, books, bottles, or virtually any solid object can make a very good self-defense tool. I like chairs in particular and would rather have a chair than a knife in my hand. A chair is an excellent obstacle for someone to have to get past, and I don't have to worry too much about being charged with murder if I pick up a chair to keep someone away from me, even somebody wielding a knife. There's even a recent video of a knife wielder being subdued and held by a couple of people with chairs. I'll leave a link in the description so you can go see it. Unfortunately the video doesn't show the takedown of the knife wielder, it only shows him being subdued and held with a couple of chairs. Still pretty interesting, you should check it out. Items on hand can be very useful and stand a far less chance of getting you into serious trouble than carrying a deadly or illegal weapon. Just some things to think about as you decide what you want to carry. No matter what you do decide on, train for using what you do carry. It's also fun to train with chairs and improvised tools so you can see and feel how useful they are. One last concept when it comes to weapons I'll leave you with is make sure you are clear what they do and what you want from them. Do you want to kill or incapacitate your attacker or do you want a tool that will help you get home safely? These are not necessarily the same thing. This is a profound question and one that will drastically affect both what you decide to carry and how you train. What other topics are you interested in hearing covered in this podcast? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube. You can also go to the Facebook group Aikido The Marshall Side and post a comment. You can now also support this podcast by donating either through a monthly sponsorship or just a single donation of any amount that you like. I always like hearing from listeners of the show, whether they come through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.